Welcome to episode 423 of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode, I interview cycling coach and road cyclist Marinus Peterson. As you can hear, I thought I would spice up the intro music as we're heading into a new era with that triathlon show where episodes will no longer be released on a strict weekly schedule. Also, it's the new year, so there's that new year, new podcast, perhaps. Uh, I hope that you like the intro music, but if you hate it, don't stop listening to the podcast, please. Just email me and let me know. And if there's several people in that same boat, then I might change to the old intro music or something different if it's not a well-received change. I'm frankly not sure if I personally think it's better or worse or the same i i just thought that it's it's about time to change change it up somehow but whether this um, intro music is here to stay i'm not super uh, strongly convinced of also a quick bit of a teaser after the interview i have uh, an announcement that might be interesting for you so listen two more minutes after the main interview is done to hear that and if it's relevant for you or not uh, but now, before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. They help athletes personalize their hydration and fueling strategies for training and racing. You can use the free fuel and hydration planner to get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate, sodium, and fluid intake in your next event. And if you want even more help, why not book a free 20-minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team. As a TTS listener, you get 15% off your first order by using the code TTS24 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. You can target specific aspects of your stroke, like catch and pull through, and work on technique or power or both. The design of the bench forces you to constantly work on core activation, which can help your body position in the water. And most importantly, you can stay consistent in your training even when you don't have time to get to the pool. Try the Zenate Risk Free for 30 days and get 20% off your first order on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Marinus Peterson. Welcome to Dutch Raffron Show, Marinus. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, Michael. How are you? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm good, thanks. Uh, it's uh, one of the last days before Christmas as we're recording this, uh, even though it will be released a little bit later. But uh, yeah, just wrapping up some things here before uh, the the holiday season. But let's start with an introduction to to yourself. Uh, who are you? Um, so I'm the founder, owner, and sole coach of Kilowatt Coaching, my my own um, small coaching business. Um, and I'm yeah, I'm also a, a race racing cyclist myself. So competing in um, road cycling, I'm, I was yeah racing with a, a French team next year, moving up to France to race. Um, and in the past, I've won. Uh, won some national races in the UK in, and my, I guess my biggest result would be winning the, the Welsh road race championships. So, um, yeah, I'm a, a, a cyclist and a cycling coach. All right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, what would you say in, in terms of the cyclists that you coach, what kind of, uh, what kind of athletes are you working with, uh, amateurs of different disciplines or are you focusing more on, on road or something, you know, something specific? Yeah, so most of most of my clients have race um road and gravel races, but I've had people racing um time trials, ultra endurance, mountain bike, cyclocross, hill climb, which is kind of like a specific discipline we just have in the mostly in the UK. And uh yeah, and consulted with some triathletes as well, because I, I do one to one coaching but also consultations. All right. Yeah. So let's start with, uh, if you can give an overview of your coaching methodology and philosophy. Okay. So, um, 
yeah, this is it's quite quite a hard question to both interpret and then articulate. But I've I've tried to do a bit of planning, so hopefully this this makes some sense. Um, so kind of the the factors I first like integrate uh, is like the individual athletes, like physiology, their their personality, their lifestyle, um, what training resources they have, like you know what facilities they have access to, and then also their previous training history. And then, uh, then we look at like the event, the demands of their event and those goals. And we kind of like work back, like how can we best pair the, the athlete for, for that, those events and goals. Um, at that point, I then, you know, apply my own, my own experience and my knowledge of you know, the scientific evidence. Um, and I'm quite clear at this point with, with uh, my clients that, you know, I, I'm only making my best guess at what I think is going to like get you to this get you to your um you know get the best results for you um and then it's kind of an iterative process of you know like finding what the outcome is and then refining the process based on how that goes because i'd say i have most success with the athletes i get to work with for longer and i get to learn more about what does and doesn't work for them and them as a person um and then yeah it was kind of repeat that in a in a sort of cyclical pattern um so yeah, it's, it's it's dynamic and changing over time, and I have a really close integration of, of nutrition. Um, so like I, I do struggle to kind of disentangle the two. Um, for example, like if I'm going to get someone to do threshold or you know any kind of medium intensity work where it's really important for the adapt- adaptation, like that what work someone can do, and the difference between them being able to say do you know two by 20 or two by you know uh, like three by 20 could it just can be as simple as you know, how many carbohydrates they eat in the 24 hours before so for me to like not like include that as part of the coaching process i feel like would be you know real disservice when when i know how important it is um so yeah and in in, in general People who start with me, I tend to get them to do more volume, either in hours or in kilojoules, which we can talk about more, um, and less kind of intensity days. Um, so, yeah, like in days where any any of the training is above the first lactate threshold. Um, and then the final thing, which I, I think I'll touch on in this, is that, yeah, prioritize consistency. Um, and if you work back from that, that means you're really focusing on your know, health, general health uh hygiene and then general robustness from you know, including strength and conditioning um so i think those are kind of like really important if yeah working backwards from what allows you to consistently train at high volume with an appropriate amount of intensity to to progress over the long term yeah i think you did a great job articulating uh, that so so well done uh maybe let's start uh, to uh to, to discuss that nutrition aspect, which uh, I think is, uh, as you say, like it's, it's hard to disentangle that from the training itself. But uh, can you give some practical tips for, other than just, you already mentioned that, okay, how many carbs you eat uh, 24 hours before can have an impact on, on the session that you do and how well you do it. Um, how do you work with clients? Is it more when you have calls with them, you discuss this, you ask what they're doing, and then you give some tips for maybe how they can improve it if what they are doing is not maybe as good as it could be, or do you have specific notes within the, their training plan for 
during training and before and outside of training how how does it work um so a, a little bit of it first of all is kind of on a on a needs basis if someone's really nailing it already then i might not have to it might just be smaller refinements um or equally it does depend a bit on on the ambition of of the client and what goals they come to with me so you know, if they come to me and they say i want to be world tour i'm going to be like well you know we're, we're going to do everything to optimize your nutrition as much as possible if someone you know only has you know, a less small amount of time to ride and yet they're less ambitious then i'll just say you know just make sure you're having lots of carbohydrates before this session and you know we might not delve into it as much um in general i find that like yeah even some people who've competed at quite a high level and been on world tour teams that i've worked with um are really bad at it fueling for, like for the work required and thinking like less so about what was my previous training session but more forward thinking to what the next training session is um so what you'll find is like some people get home and think oh, i've done a really long ride today a burnt lot of burnt lot of energy i need to get in this massive amount of food before like, i go to bed which you know can compromise sleep and it's <laughs> just um yeah many downsides and then almost like starving themselves on rest days um Whereas if you kind of, even just from a point of view of thinking about absorption of nutrients, like to kind of move that energy intake like more evenly across the week. Um, so this this can look like, you know, taking in really quite a lot of food and a lot of carbohydrate on rest and recovery days leading into like a harder session because most of the time if someone has a rest or recovery day, I'll then, um, it'll be something hard the next day. So um, prioritizing, yeah, like getting in enough um carbohydrate to fuel the next the, the next day's session um so i'd say that's kind of the main thing and and once you can start like educating someone on like what muscle glycogen is because i think there's a lot of there's a lot of terms kind of thrown around and people think oh just fueling glycogen glucose like it's, it's all the same whereas if you can kind of understand that like muscle glycogen is is like yeah like what it is and how you can actually um, um, manipulate it with nutrition. And that, you know, for example, like how much you eat on a ride, it, is, it does nothing to top up your glycogen stores. Like you can't do that during exercise. So it really is all about, you know, the day or the, the couple of days before. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that that's kind of one of the most important things I start with. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, shall I, I've, I've got, yeah. Other... Uh, you, you can, you can go on if you have more points. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, then we, we go, we go, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I prescribe people what to like take on rides. Um, so like as in how, how much carbohydrate, um, and try and educate them around how you've got your glucose, your S, SGLT1 is, um, the transport protein for glucose in the small intestine which is the rate limiting step and then we've got fructose um glute 5 uh, for fructose we've got glute 5 that transports um fructose um so yeah if you want to go up to 120 grams of carbs an hour you need to try and saturate both these proteins um and so this is my theory no i've never actually heard anyone say it before I think a lot of why fructose is a lot less well tolerated 
is because we have a much smaller amount of fructose in our habitual diet. Like even stuff like a lot of fruits won't be like 100% fructose-based carbohydrate. So you'll find most people can quite quickly go to 60 grams an hour of glucose and they don't, well, they don't have any, whether they're oxidizing all of that, we don't know, but they definitely aren't having as much um, like, yeah, issues, GI issues, whereas the fructose tends to cause problems. So something I quite often do is prescribe people to go do 60 grams an hour of fructose only so that you can like really train that that glue 5 fructose receptor without overfueling some shorter and or easier sessions um so that's something which i think is uh a lot of people don't yeah like yeah could could benefit from doing um, and do you do that uh do you do that with just uh store bought fructose mixed into water because that would i imagine get very very sweet do you mix something else in there so practical tips for how to consume 60 grams an hour of pure fructose yeah well i i just mix it with water and i think um it tastes like honey plus okay <laughs> yeah it's like, it's like really nice honey and yeah you can just you can get really creative with mixing other stuff with it um or you could like cheap orange like cheap orange or apple juices is you know, nearly all fructose so if you like Fructose powder is a cheaper way of doing it, and then you you're really maximally stripping back on the fiber, small trace elements of fiber and protein that you don't want. Um, but yeah, so I I yeah, just just buying fructose powder. It's like part of my kilowatt coaching starter pack uh, alongside maltodextrin. Um, yeah, big bags of maltodextrin. Yeah, no, that is that is that is for sure a good practical tip for also just for in general being able to fuel large amounts of training maltodextrin and fructose power um that that that's just a very cheap way of, of getting through long out long hours of of training and and not neglecting fuel because it gets too expensive if you fuel all of that with with gels yeah and if um the other good tip if you're traveling or it's inconvenient to carry around your massive bags of um fructose or uh glucose yeah fr- fructose powder or maltodextrin is to just use table sugar because that's actually got a one-to-one ratio of glucose and fructose. It isn't quite as well absorbed um, because well, they're broken down because there's an enzyme and you have to break down the sucrose into glucose and fructose. But I'd say for general training and endurance rides, that's what I use most of the time. So then I don't have to weigh out on my scales to get the ratios right. I, I just tip out the bag of sugar. And then if I'm traveling, you know, you can get white caster sugar in pretty much any any shop um so that's a lot more convenient and it's, it's also really cheap and you know i've i've known uh one of my friends has had many of his best race results in uci races just racing off sugar um mm. it's like uh, yeah all these sports nutrition companies is really just marketing and i think a lot of people could benefit from saving money on that and spending it on good coaching instead <laughs> <laughs> uh i I still like those products but but i do agree that for a lot of general training you can save that uh, save the money and and mm. i think that there's still a place for that but but it doesn't have to be like what you use in your uh, everyday in training for sure yeah. um so yeah but anyway uh were there any other uh other points about nutrition that you were uh, that that you wanted to discuss yeah so i i do like to encourage people to use um 
first of all, supplements to address any nutritional deficiencies. Um, so to get blood work done to look for iron and uh, vitamin D in most northern hemisphere countries throughout the winter. Um, and then also supplements I use for performance are um, creatine if someone's doing a block of gym work and or some sprint or anaerobic capacity efforts, um, which is I also think there's a lot of benefits for because it's um, – the, yeah, it's got like for for health and and even cognitive, um, like yeah, a, a performance. It seems to have some benefit. So I don't think there's any downside to taking creatine. Is other other than when you're racing and perhaps you you, yeah, you don't want the 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 weight gain associated with it. Um, but just for general training, I think creatine's so cheap. I think there's there's not a lot of downsides to being on it. Um, and then. If a client feels they've got bandwidth, the time, energy to to take beta alanine, because it it is you know a bit more of a faff. You have to take it three or even four doses a day. But I I, I do think for for like say VO two max efforts it, and in that you know shorter efforts in the kind of two to ten minute range, it can really improve the power you're able to do. And I think that can then drive consequently drive better adaptations as a result. Um, yeah. And then the, the final thing I want to touch on is that I do, um, I, I do look at, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not dismissive about, um, addressing someone's weight or body composition issues, uh, no, not issues, um, <laughs> like just as, as a performance parameter to, to address. Um, and so, yeah, with a lot of my clients that, that means gaining weight. I, yeah some, sometimes for health sometimes for performance like putting on muscle um sometimes it's it means uh re- yeah reducing body fat um to optimize power to weight ratio um and yeah i just see that as another kind of performance parameter that i'm uh yeah looking looking to optimize um so i, th- I think a lot of coaching coaches like you can look at just like the data you see is the data of like someone's like sessions their power meter um and if if you don't concern yourself with weight like then you can yeah perhaps like as a coach it's easy to just say always eat more because that's the easy thing to say and then like oh look the training goes better but you know if someone is doing um a weight dependent event then like it is actually something that you might need to address it at several um phases of the training cycle so um yeah, it's something yeah I also consider and periodize. Like and for for which for which kind of events uh, do you think that that is more important? Be more let's say weight conscious uh, among your clientele. Obviously, the hill climbs would be uh, would be one I assume. Yeah, yeah, for hill climbs, um, and also just hilly road races and hilly gravel events. Um, I think yeah, the your, your weight just has an impact. So. I think like when you think of any any cycle event first of all like you've kind of got what I call like your holy trinity of power weight and aero and that both changes from like event to event and even changes like within an event so you know if you're going up a really steep hill aero is nothing it's only power and weight if you're going on the flat at a high speed then you know, weight makes zero difference at all and it's just about power and aero if you're going on descent it 100k an hour even power doesn't make a thing it's all just about aero and tucking in so it's um 
yeah, it just that that's kind of my framework that I use to then consider um like which of those variables to focus more or less on with with the with the client. Yeah. What about hydration? Is uh, is that something you focus on? Yeah. Yeah. Um so I I think um in general uh just maintaining good hydration all all the time um is 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 important um and yeah so so in Loughborough I worked with um my Lewis James who did a lot of the like pioneering work on hydration was my supervisor for my um final year project and if you look at his research what he found is that um yeah around two to three percent of uh body mass is is where you start to see performance decrement so what i do with a lot of my athletes is before a race we try to we collect various data about their sweat rate and this is something i think this is really basic that a lot of self-coached athletes could do is you literally just weigh yourself like just in your cycling kit say before a ride um where like weigh everything that you eat and drink on that ride um and uh then weigh yourself after and then you can yeah calculate your sweat rate and if you do that in a few different um intensities few different environmental conditions you can start to build up a picture of an athlete's sweat rate and then for example if they're going to do a four-hour race or even a four-hour training session or you know whatever x hours it is then you can kind of calculate how much i need to be drinking to make sure that at the end of that race i'm not at you know I'm not past this threshold where I'm likely going to incur performance de- detriment. So if it's a two hour race, it very often will find that there, there is no real point in drinking because as long as you start with you in a hydrated state, that you're still going to be, you know, within that threshold when you finish. Whereas if you're doing a eight hour ultra endurance gravel event, then you're going to have to be, really close to replacing your sweat rate because even if the delta between your sweat rate and your intake is only like 300 mil an hour 300 mil times eight hours is actually you know approaching you know for some people that would be 2400 mil and then you can be starting to see performance detriment um so if someone's in the case where they're really high sweater uh, like they've got a really high sweat rate then and it's not physically going to be possible for them to uh take in enough water over the course of their event because of practical reasons or they simply couldn't stomach it then i think an intervention that is very powerful but you do have to be careful with is actually familiarizing yourself with training and in that dehydrated state um so if you look at some research there's again that lewis did on um treadmill running um he found that if you yeah like um familiarize yourself with running in a dehydrated state that yes you never will perform as well in that dehydrated state as you would if you were euhydrated but the delta between your euhydrated and dehydrated or hyperhydrated the proper word will be is smaller um does that make sense yeah yeah it makes sense yeah that's interesting that's interesting because i would have almost imagined that that's one of those things that you almost cannot cannot compensate for so i hadn't hadn't heard of that research so really really interesting interesting to know yeah yeah and i mean if you look at a lot of um 
top performances say like like Haile Gebrselassie famously mm. finished marathon like I don't know what 10% 10% I think yeah. yeah yeah so I think I, I think it's perhaps even it's not something you need to a lot of athletes don't need to do a specific block of like just by doing habitual training at a higher volume like a lot of people are getting a 10 like getting used to training in a dehydrated state inadvertently a lot of the time anyway so um yeah that can be something to be be aware of um and i think the fine final thing i'll i'll touch on on um nutrition is that i think it's quite common with uh, athletes to kind of have what i'll call like orthorexic tendencies and orthorexic so it sounds kind of like anorexia sounds like you know someone's got a problem but i think it's more of a societal thing in that people think oh you have to eat healthy foods all the time and and if we think of like what healthy food is it's something that has like very low calorific density and very high micronutrient density so if you think when you're an athlete you need food you need a lot of energy but you don't need so like your energy demands if you're training at high volume might be two even close to three times a sedentary person um but like the amount of micronutrients you need doesn't scale up anywhere near that much and maybe yeah barely at all so you don't need to eat like you know three avocados if a normal person needs one a week like so and and a lot of most nutrients scale with total food volume so if you're an athlete trying to get in enough calories without like being bloated from too high of a fiber intake or like just having food that is overly satiating you need to have food that is perhaps more like unhealthy that is a lower um that is less satiating uh higher energy density and a lower micronutrient density can is is fine because you just you just need to get the energy in um so i think yeah sometimes athletes do a disservice to themselves by um thinking they have to eat healthy food all the time always brown rice always oats and actually sometimes the more refined foods can be really useful yeah i think i think that makes makes sense um and uh yeah let's move on to another topic so one thing we discussed over email was uh, endurance rides so what you mentioned uh, of prescribing oversized endurance rides so i'll let you describe exactly how how that works but yeah let's take the lead from there what are over, oversized endurance rides in your mind uh so i think i think a lot of people uh kind of have like a hard limit on the ride length of about six hours um and apart from anything else just i think uh like if yeah applying progressive overload at some point and doing seven or eight hour endurance rides is is really powerful um and also the way the way i look at what drives endurance like adaptations from sub lt1 work is not the um the tote not the like how many hours you're sat on a bike um and is more so the total work done um so for example like yeah and then all all training has a, a cost benefit um and i think for example if you can s- get the same work done in seven hours rather than six hours by riding at an even lower intensity then you can have even less neuromuscular fatigue 
you can fuel closer to your um energy requirements um and or or the other way is you just by doing a longer ride you can get more total work done if you keep the intensity higher um so i think what i find is by going even longer and sometimes even slower like people can get more adaptation and then also be fresher for the higher intensity sessions um or if we're in a phase of training where we're just really trying to move the needle on lt1 for example then we can even do these seven or even eight hour rides with blocks of time right close to lt1 and yeah just maximize the the total work done that someone's able to do um does that yeah 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 no that that's that's very clear so um yeah how often would you uh, would you do them with let, let's assume that you're it's an athlete that has time obviously <laughs> that, to do them uh and they are an ambitious probably an ambitious cyclist because most uh cyclists that aren't quite ambitious would, would probably not ride for seven eight, eight hours but but if if we have those those uh things in place then how often might you look at at doing those sorts of rides um so it, it depends on yeah where someone is in in there with their training history and also their time availability but um yes anywhere between uh five times a week and um once a month so like with some people what well, i also find there's the, another big benefit of these the like oversized rides is that um as we were discussing earlier like for any training session there's there's a lot of like faff time either side and so for like a lot of uh time restricted people i say like i'd rather you did made that that ride on the weekend seven hours or eight hours even and then that when your time crunched in the week you just did one hour rather than like squeezing to try and fit in 90 minutes or two hours because i think there's a lot of benefits that you get when you're extending this duration because you're training in a glycogen depleted state like in those last hours of a, a longer endurance ride um so if someone can do the same total volume um but in like more dense um with, yeah with with longer rides in um including these longer rides um then i then i say if yeah if time is time is limiting i'd rather you do that and i think the the other benefit around the scheduling point of it is 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 it can allow you to have more like recovery days in the week um so it can say you could have three like oversized rides and then you've got like for recovery potentially have four recovery days or like easy short or easy recovery days there which can leave you fresher for your for your high intensity um so there's a lot of ways i'd play about it and it all depends on the yeah, periodization the athlete's uh time commitments um and yeah various other factors but consistent feedback i've had from people doing it is they're terrified of the idea at first they just think oh no six hours is bad enough i couldn't do seven or eight but actually you're like no just just take it really chill you can go somewhere you probably never normally get to go because you can do a massive loop and you know just feel really high and you'll you'll feel great the whole time because you're riding easy and you're eating loads of haribos or whatever it is you like to eat um so yeah i i I found it 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 working really well um would you would you always would you always recommend bringing a a handlebar bag for those rides to to be able to fit the haribos 
because I, I mean, I have some experience riding with Haribo's in my pockets, but, uh, but even, yeah, even with big pockets for 78 hours, I feel like, yeah, you get to the limit of <laughs> how much you can stuff in there. Yeah. Well, so if a few, a few ways I do it is, um, I, I quite often get like a little freezer bag with my carbohydrate powder and then like put that in my saddle bag. And then I'll, I know where the various taps are in the area. And then I'll like, yeah empty once my bottles are empty i'll put the powder in that and then fill it up with the tap um because i again linking back to something we said earlier about consistency like say you want to stop at a garage or somewhere once you're like getting towards the end of that um ride if you're in a glycogen depleted state it can be quite risky to do so um i yeah advise people to either use like the tap um kind of method with carrying your your bags of sugar around or or what uh, I sometimes do and what some of my clients would do is, is just have a second set of bottles and do like two loops. So do like a four hour loop and then another three or four hour loop. Um, and that, cause you like time efficiency is quite important on these days. It's like, especially with the daylight, you have to like be really on it and organized. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, 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 that can help as well. Um, mm. and even breaking it down mentally. So like, oh, I'll just do four hours and then you quickly swap over and then do another four or another three um yeah so yeah so just 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 for um to illustrate the point and that it can leave you really fresh um despite doing this big volume and these longer rides um i've done my best five minute power uh like with one recovery day after an eight hour ride before um and just like so many so many uh and then i won a rate one of my biggest races last year at the end of that week you know with multiple seven and eight hour rides in there so it's it, yeah if, if people are concerned about the fatigue it generates if you're doing it properly you're riding easy enough and you're eating enough it's actually surprising how how fatiguing it isn't <laughs> if mm. that makes any sense it, it especially when you, when you said that you can do it any anywhere from five times a week to to once a month it reminded me of uh Niels Vanderpool's uh, How to Skate to 10K, where uh, five times a week of seven, six to eight hours of riding was kind of part of part and parcel of his training for uh, for for skating and, and setting world records and taking Olympic goals. So so that was um, yeah that, that's for those that haven't read that that was an interesting case study uh, of some some extreme training, but that worked extremely well for uh, for him. Yeah. Um, so what about? People that do, let's say, people that don't have time to do oversized endurance rides, but your typical athlete might be doing two and a half to five, even six hours uh, every once in a while. Do you do you prescribe a different kind of execution? Like when you talked about the total work being a driver of adaptation, would you prescribe maybe a slightly higher effort or power or heart rate for for those sorts of rides than you would for those really long rides? Yeah. So again, the the way I look at um, yeah, what what drives adaptation within sub LT one work is is that total work done, and then you kind of have a you have someone's like the the constraints of of someone's time, and then also like their their effective fatigue budget. So or like the fatigue that you will allow that ride to generate. So that'll depend on on where it is in the cycle and how much load that person can tolerate. And then, and then it's, and then it's down to what is like the least fatiguing way of, of getting the most work done 
given that fatigue budget. So if someone if someone's really time restricted and they can only ride for 90 minutes and we're doing an endurance ride, then I'll I'll pin that like right close to LT1. Um or give giving that some margin for error. Um, because you're always better off being slightly under versus slightly over. And when you work out the total work done, say like 10 watts within a, a one hour ride, how much longer you have to ride to get the same total work done. It's like, you know, five minutes or something. So that's another thing I'd say to people is like, even if you can only do like an extra 10 minutes, like on each endurance ride, 10 minutes, six days a week is an hour a week, which is, you know, 50 hours a year and 50 hours a year is something that you could, you know, quite say is, is going to be meaningful to increasing your mitochondrial density and <laughs> all these, this good stuff, which we know is going to improve your performance. Um, so yeah, generally the, the shorter the, the ride, the, the more, the closer you can go to LT1 with generating less fatigue. Um, but I'd say, what I what I don't like people to do is is head out um, and start riding really close to LT one right from the start, and then realizing, oh, actually, this is I'm too tired for this today, and then they end up doing a lot less. So, what I quite often prescribe is say for say someone's got two and a half hours, I might say, you know, start off in, in more of like a, a two out two three out of ten RPE pace, and then as you kind of start to warm up and open up, then gradually ramp that up towards like a yeah four four five out of ten and 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 well I, I spend a lot of time with people both testing what their lt1 is and then like describing what it looks and feels like and and just making sure that yeah they they know how to ride close to that whilst um making sure they're under it how maybe we can discuss that how how do you test that and how do you describe the feeling okay so um one test I've I've started using more recently, actually, which I found seems to work very well and align with people's um, sensations of what they say their LT1 is, um, is is I just get them to... So it works best on the trainer and using erg mode, or they'll have some, had some people do it out on the road. Um, so we take, take whatever you think your LT1 is, and then we knock off, say, like 30 watts, um, and then ride easy for, say... 30 minutes to two hours whatever depending on how much time you got and then we'll do just 10 minute stages of riding a constant cadence um and like we yeah, on erg mode is, is kind of ideal um and then just increase the power 10 watts a minute um and then what i find is is that if you look at the decoupling within those 10 minute stages someone will start to decouple nearly always that first stage that's over lt1 um, I wouldn't say this is like a fail safe method. So I then tie that back to, you know, what was, um, like what, where did you feel your LT1 was? But I found very often this is kind of given, um, pretty good resolution. And then, like I say, when we actually then apply that in the real world, I'll always knock off another 10 watts again and to give margin for error. Um, so, and then as to like describing, yeah, what someone, what LT1 feels like it's it's kind of the highest it's the highest power that feels sort of effortless in a way because um it's like yeah your your blood lactate your fatigue metabolites should be you know no different to what they are at rest um and you should be able to yeah hold hold a conversation like you you your breathing will be somewhat elevated and an effort level is elevated you know from 
on a spectrum from like zero watts rest to, to riding at LT1. So it's, you know, it will, it will be some effort. And especially as your LT1 becomes higher, it's, it can be quite heavy on the legs, but like, I think you should be able to, you know, sing a few tunes. So <laughs> I've collected a, an archive of my clients singing whilst they do their blocks of riding closer to LT1 just to you know, make sure they're, they're they've, they've ticked the test. Um, but, and one final thing, which I think is quite powerful is, it's like, I think you can notice when, when you've done like any type of intensity and you've had that, that, um, disturbance to your autonomic nervous system, you almost kind of feel like a bit, like a bit high and a bit like pumped up off it. Um, and, and whereas if you, if you kept under LT1, when you finish the session, you're kind of, you might be calmer and you're feeling happier, but you're not like. Like like today I've done intervals and you can tell I'm a bit like zapped. <laughs> Whereas when you've kept it sub LT one, you just you kind of just feel calm. It's not like yeah, you've you've uh uh yeah, been electrocuted almost. I I don't know. I, it's yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's a feeling that I think you can recognise and you can get better at recognising as you get gather more training experience. Um Yeah. But I do think I do think it's a very important thing that you said that as you get fitter and your LT1 gets higher, then the sensations do change uh, and uh, and it gets harder, especially muscularly. So somebody who is just starting out as a cyclist will probably have a very low LT1 and they will tend to easily go above it. Whereas somebody who is very fit and has a very high LT1, they will be much less likely that depends a bit of i've I've, in my experience on on the athlete profile as well but 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 a lot of really fit athletes would be very far from it as their kind of natural intensity versus the the less fit athletes but but yeah i think that's a the the test that you described is is really interesting and and uh and then also another key point there is that you you have that margin margin for error as well and focusing on on keeping a bit below rather than overshooting it a bit if that's the objective of the uh of the session so so yeah lots of good points there yeah i think the final important point on that is that your lt1 will deteriorate it's just slightly different day to day and it'll also deteriorate across the course of a longer ride um and yeah the other factors like fueling and hydration will affect this but also just your your durability um so if you can feel lt1 by your heart rate and rpe um that's that that's so like that's very important because you don't want to be especially for people who've you know done less volume and are less well trained their lt1 might deteriorate by as much as 20 percent by you know the even the fourth hour of an endurance ride so um what might be a comfortable pace at the start could actually be tempo effectively by the end and the last thing we want is to be having like intensity days that, that were unintentional yeah no that that's that's absolutely true um other than the lt1 tests what other testing and and different kinds of ways of profiling athletes do you use um so i just just tend to um test people at various power durations uh like various yeah different power tests so um i like to do a kind of test in the four to six minute range um i like to do a longer test in the 20 to 40 minute range um and i also like to see someone's kind of sprint anaerobic capacity in the kind of 30 second to two minute um so 
yeah, I think I think critical power can work quite well as a model if you've got a longer test in there, um, and then that gives a good uh, estimate of, of you can get a good estimate of someone's um, anaerobic capacity then as well. Um, but I yeah I. I do. I like to have that that longer test is is quite critical, which I, in general, just give people um, forty minutes. But it depends on their their training status. Sometimes I've I like have had people do yes, just kind of feel about where their FTP is and just go for it as long as they can. And I've had some ultra endurance guys do seventy minutes at their at their FTP. Um, uh, but then some like say newer athletes with less of a training history. I kind of want to see where that threshold is, but I know they're not so familiar with pacing or, or even just like the muscular load of pushing themselves for that longer amount of time. So we might start off with a, a 20 or 30 minute test. It might be more appropriate for them. So, um, yeah, it depends on the athlete really. Yeah. And, uh, and how does this, w w in what ways does, uh, do, does the testing inform training decisions? Um, so I think it can be good to to look at whether someone is more like centrally or peripherally limited. So whether they're more limited by their their VO two max, or whether they're um, uh, like just need to work more on their fractional utilization. Um, so if someone's done a lot of volume and not much intensity, then perhaps they might need to focus more on methods to target the the central side of their their vo2 max perhaps with some heat training or some vo2 max efforts or a combination of the two um or quite often you find with uh like people with less of a training history they can improve for a very long time by doing one intensity day or less a week and just really increasing their volume um and doing some middle intensity work threshold and, and sweet spot stuff can be really really good for that as well um And then the having someone's anaerobic capacity is also useful because in in cycling, uh, yeah, and I guess in um, uh, Olympic distance triathlon, it, you know that 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 is very important. And for some people, it can be a weakness. For some people, it can be a strength, and we don't need to work on it as much. Um, and I also think that having a higher anaerobic capacity allows you to more effectively increase your VO2 max and VO2 max efforts. So again, why I might encourage someone to supplement creatine and or beta alanine, we might also do a block of anaerobic capacity efforts. Because if you think when when you hit close to VO2 max, like a lot of what's allowing you to stay there and sustain that for longer is is that anaerobic capacity. And a, a good example I use of this is um say like 1500 meter runners they hit they hit vo2 max by the time they've gone through 300 meters and yet they carry on running another three laps um with some ultra endurance guys who've got say like very little vo2 max at all it i know very sorry very little anaerobic capacity they 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 get to vo2 max and it's like then that's it they, they've got nothing and they can't sustain it for very long um so that'll change prescription of, of vo2 max type training and it also might mean that I prioritize development of anaerobic capacity with some people more or less than others. Yeah, no, that that makes makes total sense. Uh, definitely, uh, yeah, use use similar uh, do take similar decisions based on based on testing and and specifically, yeah, the tests of different duration. I mean, I I tend to a 
yeah, you see it as a formal critical power test, but even if you don't see it, do it as formal testing, you just test different durations, you get the same information, of course. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that, that makes sense. When you look at limitations being peripheral or central, uh, how, how do you determine that specifically? Um, so I think looking at some, looking at someone's LT1 can be a good test. Um, and also just looking at the gap between um, taking their anaerobic capacity into account, like the gap between their their uh, like power in like a shorter range, say like four to ten minute, and their power at like thirty plus minutes. Um, and if there's like a really big gap there, then the and their LT one is lower, then it's likely that they're more peripherally limited. Yeah. Yeah um right so oh yeah one more question about testing what do you think that are some common mistakes that that athletes make when it comes to testing and and also using the testing to inform their own training yeah so back to the power testing over various durations um like making sure that that data is like good and consistent so for example like you find a lot of people who say they can do a shorter test like they've got a five minute hill and they can do an all out five minute out on the road um but they don't have a 20 minute climb or even anything more than 10 minutes so their power for that longer test will kind of artificially look a lot lower than their shorter test and then you could perhaps falsely interpret that they were more um peripherally limited when in fact that wasn't as much the case um so i think like if you can keep the the environment consistent like in what what the data you're putting into the model um that that's that's kind of yeah that's very important um and then i think uh also just like to then to then kind of make implications about someone's athlete profile from from that and then assume this must be the case when in fact it isn't necessarily like um uh, yeah, I guess I'm there. I'm get, going on more to if you think someone's more, say, fast or slow twitch dominant, and therefore they might respond well to this or that type of training, not to just assume that because sometimes it isn't necessarily the case. Yeah, exactly. Like understand well, understanding the uncertainty in your, you might have a hypothesis, but but understanding that it might not be correct, and yeah, just trying to be attentive to. Uh, things that observations that might disprove your hypothesis essentially mm, yeah exactly that yeah 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 all right so then you talked you mentioned a little bit already about that a lot of people that you work with you have them do more volume than you used to and less intensity mm. what would, what would you say especially with the yeah balancing intensity and and volume and also recovery rest days um yeah if you could kind of boil that down into a few practical tips for people to uh to take away what what would you what would you say okay um so i think i guess what i guess i guess to to make that question a bit easier more specific maybe i for the firstly on, on the intensity side frequency of intensity during the training week do you have rules of thumb there and that they might be a bit different for different types of athletes but yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I never give anyone, or I never have, maybe I will in the future, given anyone more than three intensity days a week. But I have used double days for VO2 max and even for 
uh, other types of intensity. Like I've had someone do, I frequently have one client do like say VO2 max in the morning and then his whiff race in the evening. Um, so but I like to keep the total number of intensity days less than three. And I very rarely do three. Most of the time it'll be either one or two intensity days. Um, and so with a lot of my clients, especially when they're newer, I can, I'll pa- peg them back to doing one intensity day so that we can really maximize, um, the amount of work done they can get from the endurance riding and then back to rest and recovery and give them like two recovery days before their high intensity session. You can make sure you really hit that, that hard. Cause I, I like to, if, if I'm going to make someone do any kind of intensity at all, whether it's middle or, uh, high intensity, I want to make sure it's actually, it's actually worth doing and not just kind of just throw it in there because of this vague idea that you want to have X amount of intensity days. So, I like, I'll make sure they're actually fresh for it. They can actually hit it hard and, and get, get the adaptations you want to from that session. And if not, then we just, we just ride endurance. Um, so I like to, yeah, have, have blocks where I kind of turn the needle on, on the volume of work done we can get from the endurance riding. And then other periods where we turn that dial back by either riding less hours or riding those hours easier. And then increasing the amount of high intensity days we do to two, or yeah, and maybe some double days in there as well. Yeah, and and about the recovery. So, do you have a rule of thumb for how many easier days you would have in a week? Uh, and also, thoughts on active recovery versus complete rest days. Yeah, so I generally give someone at least. Um, two recovery days like not necessarily in a week but at least you know in like an eight day period or something so quite often if people aren't if people are full time we'll do like three days on recovery day three days on recovery day um and i i do also like to give someone like a complete day off at least you know not necessarily every week but most weeks um for like sort of the mental benefits if nothing else um and i also don't I really dislike the sort of Andy Coggan model of like saying there's a zone one and a zone two where it implies there's some discrete point like below which you're recovering and you're not doing anything. Uh, you're not doing, you're not training at all. And there's some point above which you're, you're not recovering and you're, you're doing training. So like, if you do, you know, like a 20 minute ride in like mid zone two, that probably will constitute like a recovery day. If you do six hours, like, 10 watts below your zone two then <laughs> that that that's not a recovery day so um i like yeah i like to have in general i'll have someone do like a shorter well i i, I don't like to call it recovery ride but effectively that that's what i do call it because i want them to just take it really easy and make sure it's short so like a sort of 60 to 90 minute like recovery ride and then and then a full rest day and and like when I have like recovery periods, which I, I tend to give someone every three to six weeks, we will do a lot of this, the yeah, like sort of recovery type rides where it's just you know, like one out of 10 RPE and, and, uh, yeah, take, taking it really easy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you there. And I, I think that like the terminology that we're using in, in cycling and in endurance sports is often, uh, at best confusing and at worst very misleading <laughs> and uh and that part with 
zone one recovery is is definitely one that that I dislike. I, I started calling if I use like a five zone system or a six zone system in power zones, then I still call zone one. I call it easy endurance, and zone two would be steady endurance, but it's all endurance, so it's just a kind of specifier before, but it's not rec- it's not recovery because if you're you're still if you're on the bike, you're still on the bike to get some kind of training stimulus, and okay, maybe it's just a very light stimulus, and and it's light enough that it will allow you to recover throughout the rest of the day, but yeah. but it's not. I don't. I haven't seen anything that uh, that would <laughs> indicate that you're actually recovering faster by being on the bike than by just actually being in bed or on the couch or or something like that. So so if you actually just want to recover, then you probably shouldn't be on the bike. Yeah, although like most people find that they feel awful after a complete rest day. Um, not all my clients, some do so. I tend to never give anyone a full rest day before anything hard. Yeah, I I kind of agree. I think that I think that a lot of people need just a longer warm up the day after a complete rest day, and then that that can solve things. But yeah, I mean, with some people, sure, yeah, that I I I do agree with that. Um, but yeah, anyway, so moving on uh, to periodization, what what are your thoughts on periodization? How how do you how do you use it? Yeah, so I think uh, I think a lot of people over prioritize it in what matters most, and, um, but I do still think it is important. And the one thing I'd say, which I definitely is true, is that I, you want to work from more general to more specific so more specific as you get closer to your, your goal event and like more general as you're closer to, further away from it so for example i'll focus after someone's off-season break furthest away from their um their goal events that's when we'll do gym work the most gym work and focus on that the most because lifting weights is not specific to racing a bike it's not even riding a bike so um and then uh I think I like to spend most of um, the training period like working on someone's VOG max or like at least kind of working on the peripheral limiters of that and then like the sort of middle intensity work in if like it has specificity for most endurance events. So I think that that can, that specific endurance can, if you've got a really good base that can train quite quickly in, in a month or two. So I'd rather spend like most of the the training phase like working on what's the limiters to actually making their their thresholds as as high as possible, and then like extending the time they can they can do that. So how 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 often can they repeat um, efforts that they'll have to do on a on a climb in a race, or you know, how long can they spend at their threshold for you know, like a time trial or something that that kind of TTE work if you like. I think that can be improved on very quickly and I, I don't like to waste too many intensity days on it doing loads of it throughout the year when well, I'd rather like just like rather than getting I'd rather make someone's threshold higher than than spend like loads of time um in improving how long they can ride at their threshold because yeah what well, I, I don't know it's kind of uh what am I trying to say no, I, see, I see i see what you're saying though like the you can you can waste some you can waste some time if you work too much in that in those middling intensities if you don't have the the framework in place to 
you know to raise it further and the best you can hope for is just holding it for for longer so so f- suspending some some more time on on building the capacity to raise it further in the future when you do go to that intensity to threshold intensity with vo2 max work that yeah. is that kind of the gist yeah. of it yeah and i think i think in someone like you i think you can get other than the specific endurance in like the sort of the fast twitch muscles that you're looking for to improve that endurance i think you can get all of the kind of peripheral adaptations that are going to increase the size of your threshold and your vo2 max that you get from that middle intensity work by doing more volume if you do enough of it so if someone's more time restricted then like in sort of so yeah earlier phases of training where in somebody's less time restricted you might just you know, ride 30 35 hours a week it like that middle intensity work can be quite useful but i still wouldn't look to that first of all first of all i look to just spend more time riding closer to lt1 um so it's yeah there's a balance and there's lots of different factors in there but um i i just try to think really carefully about when i ask someone to do intensity and not ask them to do it yeah for no big reason when you do vo2 max work do you have like do you find that there's uh what, what do you find is the limit for how many sessions let's say obviously that maybe depends on how frequently you do them but but if you do two vo2 max sessions a week let's say how many weeks do you find that people can do it for and before you need to kind of rest a bit i've never seen anyone do more than three weeks of consistent vo2 max efforts without needing yeah. rest yeah because um, i think the quality is important and once the quality starts to really go and yeah i i don't like to push people into overreaching um because I, I i don't i don't think that has benefits and when you say that you've never seen anybody do more than three weeks does that mean what is the average is it more like two weeks or do yeah. the average person get to three weeks and that's yeah, that's kind of it you can get to three but like i don't it's perfectly fine if someone only do yeah. two or quite often i will mix in uh, like do kind of mixed blocks or doing some medium intensity and also VO2 max at the same time. Or, yeah. um, if someone's only doing one session a week of it, for example, actually <laughs> I take back what I j- just said, because I've, I've quite often had people doing one session a week whilst otherwise doing a lot of volume or, or doing gym or doing, or trying to lose weight. So like having some other stresses, but then having that one VO2 max session a week, I find that works really well. And then I have, yeah, I've seen people do four or five weeks, but when it's one session a week, it's, it's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that's kind of, yeah, I think, I think that that's kind of what I also seen with the number of sessions, depending on how you spread it out. Like you can do, I, I see a lot of people can do six sessions, but it can be three sessions a week for two weeks or two sessions a week for three weeks. And obviously, uh, six weeks of one session session a week but but that seems to be quite a common common number that you get to before you kind of see signs that you're at least getting into the area of diminishing returns yeah yeah uh, and what about aerodynamics how yeah is that how do you work on that how do you factor that into the training um so yeah i i uh it depends on yeah like the someone's event how important it is but what I do like to do is um, like for for like blocks of riding closer to LT1, I think is a really good opportunity to practice riding in your aero position. So 
yeah, very often I'll, I'll prescribe that. Um, or for some of that middle intensity work, I'll be like, just, just practice on, um, practice riding in like your aero breakaway position, um, and practice, practice doing it to the end of a long ride, um, under fatigue as well as, as you know, in the situation in a race is you have to ride in aero, focusing on speed, um, like under some amount of fatigue. So is, is you're not going all out, but say if, if, especially for a more well-trained person, I think you're still working on much more of like what's going to limit your power output at those high intensities by riding close to LT1 in that position rather than, you know, like hundred to hundred plus watts below it. Um, so that's something I incorporate a lot. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't do it in, uh, in like for like VO2 max stuff and, and quite rare, more rarely for threshold type efforts. And, and I sometimes, prescribe as well um just like say say with like a sweet spot session i'll say like i think under overs are kind of like like i don't think you need to do deliberate under overs necessarily but i also think just doing like efforts out on the road that are more like stochastic is is kind of just a more um ecological way to do it so i'll say to someone like ride at this kind of average power but basically see how fast you can go off that average power. So, you know, you can kind of figure out, does it mean I need to go like way over up, up the climb or just slightly over and like focus more on aero here and focus like, and here like focus less on aero, more on power and just like really getting good at, at riding to speed. Um, Cause if someone's going to win solo uh, in, a, in a breakaway at the end of the race, it's, you know, it's speed is what's going to determine your result, not, how, how much power you put out and it's, it's really surprising like how much faster putting power out in the right places can make you go versus just like flat lining like you're on erg mode on swift um so that's that's a skill that takes a lot of practice and and but is also really important yeah no that's a really good session uh, i like that and uh what about uh if we talk about the really time crunched uh demographic so let's say people that have up to up to 10 hours a week to to train do you have any any special considerations for for this group um so i say the first thing to that is uh like when people are like more time restricted is because they you know they've got other things going on in their life they've got work family and commitments and stuff and and quite often it's it's more the restriction is that you know like they can only you can only take so much total stress and it's it's almost less so than than the like in some cases it really is just total time commitment but i think there's al- there's also a large element of its total like stress and i think people who are time crunch quite often they'll think oh, i have to do loads of intensity and sometimes they even think they have to do some kind of you know nutritional interventions that are that are making them more tired for their kind of their, their, their family and work life. And quite often what I found with some of my clients is when I've asked them to kind of ride a bit more, but also do less intensity and ride easier and fuel better, they find that like, say one of my clients used to ride sort of eight to 10 hours a week. And he said, I, I got him riding more, um, but doing a lot less intensity. And one of the things he said to me is, Oh, my wife's just now saying to me, um, 
you just got so much more energy now like you feel so much less like dead all the time and because before you're doing the classic thing people do when they first start training they think, oh every ride's got to be flat out and they might not actually be training that effectively but their training is actually being really detrimental to their their work and personal life um so that's one thing i'd say to look out for first is think is it actually like could i train perhaps the same or or more training but do it in kind of a less stressful way that's um not affecting my life as much and i think very often that can be just thinking because i'm time restricted i have to do intensity all the time um and i think if anything you can probably cope with even less intense sometimes you can cope yeah you you have to do even less intensity days because you don't have the volume and training history to help you tolerate that. So what we said earlier about riding closer to LT1 on your endurance rides, you can really pin that close. And the trainer is your friend there to to help help keep that intensity just where you want it to be. Um, and uh, yeah, I think then also just like being being kind to yourself when you have those other stresses, those other life stresses and and maybe you plan to do some hard efforts one day but actually your work and and your personal life ended up being really stressful then just just move that on a day and and uh it, it's it's going to work out better in the long run than and trying to always push through sessions that that you're not feeling good for yeah no great points and uh, a couple of reflective coaching questions here before the rapid fire questions first what is something that you're trying to learn more about or focus on at the moment or recently um so yeah looking into heat training and um how you might yeah how to try and best uh periodize that and uh like what types of other training you might want to be doing at the same time what what best protocols to use um so yeah that's that's something i'm very much looking into at the moment and starting to use with with some of my clients as well as doing it myself yeah so you said that you actually as part of your ride today you you finished off with some heat training and uh, that's quite interesting because uh i assume that you're not racing in the heat anytime soon or maybe i'm wrong about that <laughs> are you <laughs> no, no in fact some of the race i'm a bit worried that some of the early season race i'm gonna have to do in britain you're gonna be a bit cold and wet but yeah so do you do that for the heat training for hemoglobin mass or yeah 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 and for increasing plasma volume um so yeah this i mean the evidence as far as i can see is pretty strong and that it can improve performance in in temperate climates um i think just the consideration around it is that it's also the type the type that i'm doing which from i gather from the literature is more effective where you're actually riding rather than passive heat training is 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 more effective but it's also much more fatiguing so i think you either have to reduce your volume or reduce the amount of intensity you're doing to um to compensate for that and then as it's like is it better to do concurrently or around when you're doing vo2 max training so you get a better response from the vo2 max training or is it better to save it closer to when you want to have your peak performance and you do all you do all the other work before and then you just kind of have it as this final novel stimulus to get that extra percent i, I don't know mm. I, don't, I don't know if anyone does at this point yeah uh no but i'm 
I'm curious to hear your results when you when you have some some findings. And uh, if you could go back in time and give yourself some uh, some advice around the time that you started cycling, what would you tell yourself? Uh, <laughs> there's loads of things, um, but I I'll just say two easy things, which I think are probably have important messages. And um, one of them is just realizing how much you have to eat when you start cycling, um, because it's quite easy to yeah burn a lot of energy and i don't think ap- appetite's not always the best to scale with that increase in energy expenditure um so i yeah did run into some problems in just losing weight really fast when i first started cycling um and yeah like health consequences as, as a result um and then i'd also say um i wish i'd started doing strength and conditioning training earlier that could have prevented some injuries i had um so yeah i think that's uh, even if there's no direct performance benefits which i think there are of strength training um i think it's for most people it's it's really worth doing for the health and robustness benefits that allows you to maintain consistent training over the months and years was in your case was it overuse injuries or uh, traumatic injuries that maybe Uh, could have been prevented with bone health bone bone density yeah well so the first the first uh, injury I had was was just with like my patellofemoral pain that went hmm. on for like a whole racing season. That so meant I never got to like really do any races the first year I started cycling. Um, and then the other injuries I've had are oh, getting prioritizing good bike fit. That would be my other big important thing because the second horrific injury I had was from riding with shoes that were too small for me ended up having stress fractures in a stress fracture in my navicular bone and stress responses in my my first and fifth metatarsal because most cycling shoes are too narrow so what i was having and i've got very wide feet um so what i was having is that these shoes were yeah my feet were like splaying over the edges um and then yeah i ended up uh like i, I couldn't i was yeah i was in a wheel i had to use a wheelchair to get around because if you've got you can't like you can't put pressure on either foot and then it was over covid time as well and so the healthcare access it meant like 14 weeks i i couldn't i couldn't even walk um and it was yes it was mismanaged and i think if it hadn't been covid it would have only been five six weeks but there was that and then the other stupid injury i had was just on my brother's like stunt scooter at the skate park and you know this got nothing to do with my advice around cycling other than don't go on a scooter at the skate park just because your brother tells you to do it and go down the biggest ramp even when you told him that's a stupid idea and you don't want to do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i broke my ankle then and that was another uh, if nothing yeah yeah i had a bit of bad luck but yeah yeah um no cycling can be dangerous but yeah i guess the second the scooter one was not <laughs> related to cycling so at least there's that um yeah so let's move on to and finish off with the rapid fire questions so take just one sentence to answer these and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports um i i i i, I struggle to to think but I, i'll i'll try to make something that's useful for the listeners um and i'll say that i think the the long munch podcast which i think it's now changed its name to fueling endurance um there's there's so much fantastic advice on there and it's really helped me as much as i've learned some things from it i've also um 
like it's really helped me articulate my knowledge of nutrition to my clients as well so i think Mm. that's a fantastic resource and what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically professionally or personally um i think just like never accepting anything uh as as given like from regardless of what the information source is i i always sort of question it and and think about myself but like yeah whether it makes sense to me or not so yeah skepticism skepticism Uh, yeah 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 Yeah. who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you uh so i think my my nana who died in 2019 she was uh yeah always active throughout her whole life and practiced yeah practiced yoga as she was a yoga teacher well into her 80s and used to carry on swimming in the sea and um she was yeah always just kind of like really outgoing almost to the point of being reckless um and so yeah she's just kind of encouraged me to you know i was was quite academic i could have gone down that kind of straight line money earning route but instead it's like i want to be a pro cyclist and have a coaching business I'll, i'll do what the hell i want and that kind of attitude i think has has come from her a bit yeah, nice. And uh, finally, where can people find you and and your coaching business? Um, so I have a personal Instagram. If you want to follow me, me and my racing at Baroness Peterson on Instagram. My coaching business, Kilowatt Coaching, is is also um, exclusively on on Instagram. Um, I have some. Uh, yeah, if you want to follow my Strava as well, see some of the crazy training I do. Um, and I have some a YouTube channel. Um, which is mostly rubbish, but you might find some of it entertaining. <laughs> so I think in the future, I'm hoping to do some good, better content on there. But yeah, you might find some of what's on there already. It's interesting. All right, great. Thank you so much, Marinus. It's been great to chat to you and uh, hope to do it again another time. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with all of the relevant links that we might have mentioned. And now to the announcement that I teased at the beginning of the episode. Firstly, as it stands, we are very close to full capacity for coaching, which is, of course, uh, great news for us. We have half a handful of available slots only. So if you are interested in having a coach for the 2024 season, which I do very strongly recommend if you want to give yourself the best chance to perform to your potential, then now is the time to reach out. As in a couple couple of weeks, we might no longer have any slots available. So check out scientifictriathlon.com forward slash coaching and email me at michael at scientifictriathlon.com and uh, let's see if we might be able to help you achieve your triathlon or endurance goals now secondly with this in mind i am starting to look to bring on a new coach to the team and as a listener of the podcast you probably already understand how we view coaching so you already have an idea of what is expected from a coaching standpoint Uh, but what i do want to say as well is that i want to bring on somebody who is uh, prepared to gradually build up their athlete roster or so or so but the idea is that within a year or a year and a bit it would be at least a 40 to 50 percent job so coaching 10 to 15 athletes uh, if you want to have just a handful of athletes on your roster on the side of an already busy full-time job then this position is probably not for you because uh, i do think that by coaching uh, a 
reasonable amount of athletes you just learn and improve so much more quickly provided of course that uh, you're doing so with thoughtful consideration but i'm sure that uh, if you're considering working for us then you tick that box and and it's also my responsibility in the vetting process to make sure that that is the case but uh, anyway it is really important for us to make sure that our coaches are half time at least or up to full time basically Uh, so another thing that i want to say is that in the past when i announce these openings there are unfortunately very few women that apply i'd love to see more women apply and give this a shot so if you're listening to this and not sure sure if you're qualified then it's better to just apply and find out or even just email me and ask uh, rather than uh, not apply and never know one more thing is that even if you, as, as listening to this uh, announcement right now, are not going to apply for this position, maybe you're not a coach or you're not interested in, in it, if you know somebody that you think might be suitable and inter- interested, then let them know and tell them to give it a shot. And uh, finally, as for how to apply, just send an email to michael.scientifictriathlon.com. You can find the email address in the episode description. Send in your CV and a bit of a background and description of yourself, and uh, I will let you know about the the next steps from there. Uh, I hope to get lots of great applications. Now, uh, to finish off, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelhydration.com. If you're looking for high-quality, practical, and tasty fueling and hydration products, make sure to try Precision Fuel Hydration. There are a range of options from drink mix to gels to choose, so you can easily find your personal favorites. And don't forget to take 15% off your first order with the code TTS24. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Swim Trainer is a great tool to have in your toolbox to improve your technique and power, to target specific aspects of your stroke, and to maintain consistency when you don't have time to get to the pool. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on senatesimpair.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.